tech. I mean, there's a million awesome things happening in open source technology, but I really think about it from a where is humanity going, you know, and where is where ultimately is open source technology as a movement going to take us? And I think that's really interesting. All the time and effort that a lot of co- commercial companies spend patenting things and, and you know, on, on intellectual property law, we actually just spend that time and energy to making a better product and not defending patents and suing people. And even though we have been sued ourselves, and open source, frankly, is the tool by which we're able to actually win those lawsuits, frankly. But so I think like just the energy spent and less litigation, being able to build better tech and let that be the thing that wins as opposed to who's the fastest to rush to patent something. Um, I think that's just better for technology. It's better for the end user. It's better for society because it's really just a race to, to be able to build the better tech and the better business model around that. So with me on the show today is Brett Davis. He is the Executive Vice President at IX Systems. Brett, thanks for taking the time to chat with me this morning. Yeah, JT, great to be here. So just for full transparency for anyone listening, I do work at IX Systems. Um, I just need to put that out there so everyone's on the same page. This is just an interview with Brett. You know, Obviously, I've known him for a while. Uh, he's been with IX for a long time. So I'm sure there's some interesting stories that we're going to get into from that. But before we start, let's just kind of get a capture of what are the types of things you do in a normal week with IX? Oh, um, it's a great question. If you look at my role, it's 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 changed so much throughout time. And I've been with IX now for, gosh, I think 19 years uh, coming up in December. So it's one of the things that I really like about my role and position is the fact that it's kind of ever changing. But I think, you know, these days, product management, marketing and sales all kind of roll up to me. And uh, that means I get to just dabble in all those areas. I have I have VPs under me in each of those departments that all are able, cap- more capable than me in, in all of those areas. And so, uh, which is nice. This is a nice place to be. Five years ago, we weren't there. So that's really nice. So I, you know, I'm, I'm usually now working on setting strategy. Um, I work on uh, marketing strategy, still, you know, manage some of our customers, some of our larger accounts. We're really just one account these days. And then I just spend a lot of time just focusing on planning and, and you know, figuring out where IX is going next year and the year after and five years down the road. So I just have a, a little further view down the road than I think I used to before, which was a lot more tactical. And uh, today I get to be more strategic. And, and really work on the business itself instead of in the business, which is uh, kind of, again, I think over the last several years has been a transition for me, but it's been great because, you know, I think IX has, has an incredibly unique culture. We've got a unique story and a unique history and being able to continue to cultivate that and develop that and make sure that as we scale and grow as a company, that that, that culture scales with us is something that uh, that I'm heavily focused on these days. And I love it. I love that. We get told constantly by folks who join us like, wow, this is a this is a unique place. I've never worked at a place like this. It's so cool. And so I, I just want to do everything we can to make sure that we're still saying that when we're a thousand employees and, you know, if, if we ever get there and beyond. So before we dive into how you actually 
came to be at IX. I want to wind the clock back a little bit. When you were younger, was technology something that you were always interested in, or did you kind of come into the technology field later? I was, I was always, I mean, really, I think my introduction to technology was around, I think a lot of folks actually was around gaming and, uh, you know, without aging myself, you know, it was uh, Commodore 64 for me is my first gaming system. And then of course, Nintendo and all the consoles and things like that. I don't game much anymore, but uh, certainly it was it was my introduction. I mean, I remember my dad bringing home our first 386 PC was uh, the first one that came in the house. And I remember taking it apart and and later we got a 486 and, and I was able to put in a CD-ROM drive so that I could you know play some other games on it. So I started getting into hardware just by ne- the necessity to play the games I wanted to play, taking computers apart and putting them back together, which I found pretty gratifying. But I wouldn't really call it necessarily an intrinsic interest in technology as much as it was as I just really wanted to make sure that the games worked. And um, and then actually led to one of my first jobs, which was at CompUSA. And I was about 16 years old at CompUSA. Pretty sure uh, most folks might know remember CompUSA who are, who are around uh, our age. I remember it. Okay. Um, yeah, so I, I started as the door greeter at uh, CompUSA. So I was the I was the one who checked off people's receipts as they walked out of the door. And this was kind of a novel concept actually back then in whatever that was, mid-90s, because people felt like it was a violation of privacy, I remember. So I got yelled at a lot for checking people's receipts. And it was actually a pretty rough job. But I eventually moved into accessories, selling printer cables and printer paper and stuff like that. And eventually it, it, into uh, PC sales there as well. So yeah, that was in high school. It was kind of a part-time job that I had and, and I loved it. And I got discounts on software and I got discounts on hardware. I loved that aspect. And I uh, just really could talk about PCs and talk about games uh, all day with customers. And I, and I thought that was great. And then um, later I ended up working at uh, at Office Depot as their business machine specialist, doing much the same, but more, I mean, I was selling to, to consumers, but but also I was dealing with businesses as well. So it's kind of my first foray into like that business to business, PC computing sale and selling phones and all sorts of technology. So that was really my my first introduction into tech. And then in college, really my, fir- my first introduction, I don't want to just uh, commandeer the interview, but my I wanted to talk about my first introduction to open source, if that's all right. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, I mean, so it's also in the context of gaming. I remember my the first time hearing about open source technology, I've been heard about it a little bit when I was working at those uh, those jobs in high school. But um, when I was in college, I remember I had a couple of CompSci roommate, roommates that were majoring in CompSci. And I remember they had Linux systems, I uh, think Red Hat specifically, and I remember only understanding open source in the context of those were the PCs they had that couldn't play the games that we wanted to play. So they had to have different you know, PCs to play the games we were playing, which were EverQuest and Counter-Strike and things like that. So, you know, and I got curious about it, inquisitive, and they kind of walked me through it and showed me how it worked. And they had desktop interfaces. So it was like, oh, okay, well, this isn't too much different. So that was really kind of like my first introduction into operating systems, et cetera. And then uh, then IX was kind of the, the next introduction into open source. And the interesting thing about that is that um, that was really my first introduction to the world of BSD and FreeBSD, specifically the first day that I was asked to come interview at IX Systems which was off my server back then, by the way, which we can go into that story. But the first day that I was asked to interview was actually the FreeBSD 10-year anniversary party at the DNA Lounge in San Francisco. And so I had no idea 
what I was getting into. Um, the, you know, I actually thought this was a job interview. So founders of, of IX basically invited me there and I show up with, uh, I remember a, a button up shirt and a tie and, you know, I'm ready for an interview. I'm wearing a suit jacket and I show up at the, the 10 year anniversary party. And I mean, I'm just floored. People are in full latex outfits people are dressed up as demons and devils you know i mean it, to me it was like this bizarre scene and i was so out of place the guy showing up in the tie and the, and the shirt you know i had no idea what i was going to but i had a blast that night it was actually such a such a cool introduction to the community and and meeting developers and um and really just getting introduced to the company as well but i remember walking at first and going where the hell am i what 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 have I gotten myself into? And then it, by the end, I was having a blast. So um, anyway, so that that's kind of the story of how I got introduced to to tech and, and open source. So being you know the the customer, I guess at that point you would have been like a customer sales rep back when you were mm -hmm. working at, at CompUSA. Um, so you you were the guy people went to when they needed to find the fifty pin Centronics cable that they needed, and they they didn't have one home. You were the guy. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Uh, sold a lot of parallel serial cables. Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, I knew cables inside and out back then. So that's one thing I wonder about kind of our industry going forward is if that kind of hardware aspect is being lost. Uh, because these days, everything is prepackaged. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, you go back to those 386, 486, and even into the Pentium era, you know, you'd buy a computer. And then, of course, you had to add a whole bunch of things in if you wanted to expand it. You know, you wanted to add in the CD-ROM, well, you had to add that. You wanted to upgrade your sound of course you know you had all those isa cards and then of course later pci and then pcie whereas these days a lot of systems people buy i mean outside of like the graphics card it's all pre-packaged they just buy it as a unit and i don't think younger people these days are getting kind of that tinkering experience and having to kind of figure those things out and the, like for me i always thought it was fun when you got new stuff and you actually got to add it in because you were making the system better it wasn't just go buy something new that's better. And I wonder if that's going to have kind of a downstream impact in our industry with kind of the hardware development, if we're kind of losing something because of that. It's an interesting question. You know, I think that there is a difference between tinkering, tinkering on in the physical, tangible world of hardware, as opposed to where I think a lot of people, quote unquote, tinker with technology first now is in software, um, which is which is maybe the inverse of of how it how it used to be and uh but i do think that there is a difference in terms of that that experience um that visceral experience of actually you know touching and playing with hardware i think it's cool in terms of downstream impact you know it's something that i actually observe at the customer level now with with ix is the concept really actually so many folks now are getting their first taste of technology just you know without ever seeing hardware infrastructure ever touching feeling of being in a data center any of those things and everything's just kind of in in the virtual space in the cloud and i have a funny story actually about that i was it was this was kind of an aha aha moment for me i was working with uh hashicorp i'm sure you know hashicorp and and so i was actually i was actually going to a talk and uh, their cto was there and he gave this great talk about just all the, the various tools that that Hashi was bringing to market. And they had just had some really cool stuff in the infrastructure space that they were doing. And so many customers that we knew at IX were actually using HashiCorp tools to manage their data centers. 
And then after the the talk, we got to hang out and we were with a mutual customer. I probably probably shouldn't name. I I uh, uh we'll probably probably have to yeah we'll probably have to anonymize them. But they we were they were actually well they were giving the talk there, so I think it's okay. It was it was Groupon at the time, and it, the talk was actually you know it was a public talk, so I think people know. But afterwards, we got to tour the Groupon data center because his talk was actually at Groupon, and we go into the data center. And his name's Armin. It was his first time when we stepped in there. He was like, wow, his first time ever stepping foot in a data center. And the, the crazy, what it, the aha moment for me was that this guy is building some of the most forward thinking tools in terms of managing this infrastructure that we're seeing for the first time in his eyes, which I just thought was like just mind blowing to me that that's kind of where that next generation is getting their feet wet is just in such a non-tangible kind of virtual space that the data center is kind of this far off concept that I could build tools for with every after ever having a scene. So yeah, I guess kind of a long, long way to answer your question, but I have noticed that the skill set around understanding, building, managing hardware, certainly in in the time that I've I've been doing this over 19 years at the customer level has just become more of an abstract concept to most folks that are doing infrastructure management or or DevOps or whatever. I mean, some of them will work for years and years and years at a company without ever seeing the hardware. So is there a downstream effect? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I certainly know that the, the amount of choice that seems to be available now to, to customers has dwindled just in terms of, you know, the, the various manufacturers out there of, you know, there's, we've only had two CPU manufacturers. We've only got three hard drive manufacturers. So that's kind of a, um, maybe a downstream effect or really just a market moving, but, but yeah, it's, it is, it is something that I've noticed and hard for me to prognosticate what that looks like in 10 years. But uh, I think that it just kind of continues that way. But uh, here at IX, we're still, still really involved in hardware. So, you know, for me, I, I see it and eat, sleep and breathe it every day. So hopefully it doesn't die with me. Yeah. It's interesting you bring up the the hardware aspect of like dwindling um, options because, I mean, in general, our industry goes through these ebbs and flows back and forth. And I mean, obviously, in you know, you look at the 90s and the early 2000s and I mean, everybody's mom had a CPU architecture that they were trying to promote and push. Um, and then we we dwindled down to basically the two and there were still some stragglers hanging on. I'm hoping that we're kind of seeing that swing a little into the the other direction. I know Open Power has been pushing really hard. Uh, Risk Five has been pushing really hard. I'm hoping we can kind of get some of that, you know, variability back because I think that brings about kind of a a dynamic aspect where people kind of open up a little bit into okay, what other options are there? Like what possibilities are there instead of just getting locked into a this is the way things are done. I think having those additional options, it kind of broadens to, okay, what can we do? Yeah, you know, I totally agree with that. And, and I think that from a couple of perspectives, first of all, I think from just a hardware market perspective, the fact that for a while in data center infrastructure, there was kind of just one TPU option for the past, you know, I'd say, I don't know, until about four years ago, you know, AMD was pretty much out of the market. ARM had not made really any significant impact. It was just Intel. And what happens, I think, I think that does create market opportunities, right? I mean, in, in that scenario, Intel started to kind of sl- violate Moore's laws, slow down their innovation on the processor side. And that opens the door for folks like, you know, 
AMD and then also NVIDIA in a, in a, in, in, they took a different approach to the market, but opened up a market opportunity for NVIDIA to really kind of explode as well over that time. So I do think that as the market, the free market kind of works um, and, and people continue to innovate there and see opportunities and, and see places to innovate, I think that's, that's something that happens. I think one of the things that's sort of a risk for CPUs specifically in chips, silicon, et cetera, is, you know, the fact that the way AMD was able to leapfrog Intel was to get to seven nanometer by manufacturing a TSMC in Taiwan. And Intel was basically stuck at 14 nanometer for years. And this is why, you know, Moore's law was violated. And so they're, they're on their quest to get to seven nanometer. They, you know, just kept pushing out and pushing out releases and they end up, ended up having to themselves go to TSMC in order to get to seven nanometer. And I think that presents just a, just another kind of geopolitical risk, obviously, of having all of that under, you know, one tiny country in APAC. And, you know, this is why we saw the CHIPS Act just pass here in the U.S. You know, I think we have some risks also, but I think it does open opportunities. But I think one of the things that, that, I've, that I've noticed as you see things like Ampere and you see things like ARM try to come to market is, uh, and, and this happened to NVIDIA too with CUDA until they open sourced it. You know, it's it's hard to get a customer to, the, the applications are really what are going to ultimately now drive the infrastructure decision. And if the application doesn't compile as easily, if it's not transferable from x86 to ARM or to whatever other option out there, it's a real barrier for companies to move and adopt that technology. And so anything that can be done to just kind of create a, you know, a simpler transition for those customers is just critical, I think. I mean, I, I watched in early days of NVIDIA and CUDA, I, I saw so many of our customers look at that and say, oh my gosh, wow. But it took them 10 years to to adopt it because as soon as they really kind of dug me into the service, saying, oh, I got to recompile everything for CUDA. I mean, I got to rewrite this whole application. No way, right? And so it just took a long, long time. And NVIDIA luckily had some other market forces and other businesses that was able to kind of propel that forward and, and other things that, that made that desirable. And some other companies were able to build on top of that as, you know, AI and ML became more and more of a thing. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's the opportunity, but also the challenge for other architectures on the CPU side, definitely to be able to help to really give customers that. Uh, an array of options. Speaking of CUDA and the fact that it's kind of its takeoff really seemed to hit once it was more open source and people could actually kind of dig into it and then affect their own software stack accordingly. And that kind of being an inflection point and tying back to something you said earlier about an aha moment, where was kind of your aha moment for like the open source concept, the broader concept of, oh, because this is all open, these are the possibilities that exist. You know, there's been so many. It's it's hard for me to say that there was one. You know, I think if I dial back history and I look at just joining IX Systems, which was off my server at the time, you know, this was literally three guys in a in a building. Two of the guys were living in the building. You know, just that that late 90s, early 2000s startup story of guys working in a garage really was that. And it was really my first exposure to that. But to see the products that we were building and what we were capable of doing, you know, I, as I joined as the fourth person uh, on the team, to see how advanced 
an architecture that had just been created by essentially two people in terms of our in terms of our infrastructure it blew my mind that all of this could be done with this company that basically you know people were taking no salaries we had no money at whatsoever people working for free but still being able to kind of bootstrap this business from the ground up and being able to do that we would never have been able to even make it that first year if it wasn't for open source and that was kind of just an eye-opening thing for me is just how it lowered the barrier to entry into a technology business in a way that just by the nature of it being free but it also provided a, a platform for us to build a product on so one of the first products that we were building back then was something called it was a, a co-developed product called the astro flow guard and it was a bandwidth limiter it was a quality of service for networks basically and it was just to be able to see like two guys build this thing and it being this really awesome product that worked to me it was eye-opening kind of mind expanding moment into just what it what what it meant to be open source but you know the other thing we were also selling servers back then server infrastructure and really we were focused on designing server hardware for customers that were using open source operating systems right so we got exposure to all the obscure variants back in early 2000s you know we were still competing against dell hp ibm etc but none of those guys would ever touch any uh, open source operating systems or qualify their certify their hardware with open source operating systems back then other than red hat and maybe SUSE, maybe but we were certifying our hardware on all the bsd variants um, which nobody was touching and no one actually really has even touched since uh, in terms of actually making it a, an official operating system other than than us as far as i know but um gen 2 linux all the obscure uh, slackware you know slackware we actually were a corporate sponsor for and so we we were certifying harder for all these different variants and so you know it was interesting to see we also had a small fraction of customers that were buying windows server and so for us if you're buying 100 servers and you're buying windows server for each of those you know that was going to be a minimum hundred thousand dollar investment probably back then uh, just to get the operating systems on them and so you know we watched and helped other companies and customers build their businesses and and i to me it just looked like this as a salesperson it looked like Wow, look at this this hundred thousand dollar savings this line item that's just deleted off of here when someone can just use an operating system for their their for their infrastructure that's just widely available and i think that uh that just was to me just an extremely powerful business tool so that was kind of an aha moment uh, i think another one also was just going to open source trade shows and really interacting face to face with the community um BSD can was one of the first ones I went to, but we used to go to a lot of small open source shows that were regional and things like that. It was just cool to to, to experience the passion that these people had for, for things that they were effectively volunteering to to work on, which I just thought was was super cool and made the aha moment for me was that, yes, this is about technology, but really it's the human factor that's a, a huge part of this. And so to me, that was kind of a watershed moment just to kind of realize this the thing about open source is that it's really about people and humanity as much as it is about technology which i i've always found um you know thrilling so yeah one of the things that i, I often say when i'm talking with people and trying to kind of bring them into the understanding the open source mindset is because a lot of the times i hear this well this is kind of a crazy idea and i'm like well actually it, it's really not you've heard of it before it's, it's called the scientific method it's a whole bunch of people working together, building off of what everyone else knows and what everyone else is learning, allowing everybody to then learn more and be able to do more. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's a open source is a force multiplier. I mean, that's that's really at the end of the day, it's a catalyst, right? I mean, I, I you know, I get a little grandiose when I talk about this, but I, I really think that it's the, one of the most important things to happen to technology ever. Um, and the the acceleration to innovation, the lowering the barriers of enter, uh, entry to innovation, it just breaks down boundaries of geography, economic status, employment status, any of these things. It's just about people, a, a collective wisdom, a collective intelligence, people working together to build something that's greater themselves, but then also building things that are that are then going to be building blocks for the next piece of technology. So one of the things that's most interesting to me about open source technology is the fact that it means that as an engineer, you don't necessarily have to solve the same problem twice. And this is, you know, I, I, I use the example of the number of operating systems since 1950, we, you know, have been created as it's in the, you know, a couple of hundred, right? And if you look today at GitHub, we've got 60 million, something like that, 60 million active projects on, on GitHub. And to think, you know, of course, building an operating system is, you know, who knows what the size of those projects are. Of course, it's not a one to one. But what I think about when I think about those two numbers is how many GitHub projects would exist today if all of those developers also had to go back and develop their own operating system first in order to then de develop that project or that application or that tool or whatever it is. The fact that you can have an open source operating system and, and that substrate is there and then you have an application layer that's, and you, have, you don't have to create your own language. All of those things, the fact that those are available as tools to use to then continue to build upon them is really an amazing human feat, frankly, to be where we are today. And and look, I mean, the problems that we we have and are facing today, you know, these are global now, right? As we become, we've become more global since the invention of the internet. and biggest problems we have facing as humanity are incredibly complex. And it's not going to be one person or one team or anything. It's going to be the collective wisdom of people building tools on top of one another, working together collaboratively to solve these things. And this is what I think is really the the true virtue, the true value of, of open source is it just provides that at least the mindset for solving problems that way. And uh, I just think that's it's just so cool. When, when I zoom out and I stop to think about it, I just, I just think it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. So to, to pull back a little to something we were, you mentioned before, you, you're in university, you go to this BSD event, you get to meet everybody. You then obviously you interview for IX. So what, what was the attractor to, you know, you mentioned joining as, as the fourth to joining this tiny little company that that was the path for you instead of going and working at one of the major big, IT or, or, you know, engineering corporations at the time? I, I don't think I knew it at the time, but I found a passion for building things. And I, I, but at the time, what I, what I saw was a cool group of guys that I liked, you know, just as people, you know, our founders, Mike Loth and Matt Olander just really had a connection with them and just enjoyed hanging out with them. And I was actually working for a shipping company and then a medical devices company before that. So it kind of dabbled in other industries as well. And didn't love what I was doing, but I saw, hey, this is kind of gives me an opportunity to go back and work in technology, which is kind of where I started not my career. But I, I started like, you know, my, my initial some of my initial jobs were working in tech. And so I you know, missed that. 
So there was a little bit of that, but I just, it was really just about the people that I met and being able to, to work on something that's cool and explore open source, you know, understand it better. And Matt Olander's, uh, I don't know if you've had Matt on a show, you should definitely have Matt if you can, if you can pin him down. Um, the guy, especially back then, was a visionary just in terms of, uh, and still is today, but, you know, just in terms of being able to see the future and how important open source was. And he was, you know, so passionate about it. And I think that was really attractive to me, too. And, and But it really got me interested in it and, and just really saw the the opportunity. At, at back then in the early 2000s, open source was still kind of that weird thing that those hippie developers were doing. Right. You know, I mean, still even then, even though it had been around for 50 years at that point, almost. Uh, 40-ish years. This is around the same time that Steve Ballmer was calling Linux a cancer, you know, things like that. So it was really just on the outskirts. And, you know, I've always kind of also been an upstart and sort of, I like have a rebellious streak too. So I liked that too, that it was kind of this, this movement that was swimming upstream, basically. I liked that too. So um, all of those things really kind of struck a chord with me at that time in my life. And, um, and it's just been exciting to be a part of it since then. So let's talk about the history of IX for a bit. Um, you've mentioned off my server a few times. And mm -hmm. if I'm correct, there's actually a direct lineage back to BSDI. Is that correct? Yeah, 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 there is. So IX systems in its current form, absolutely. The heritage goes back to BSDI. So I can tell you the kind of the truncated version of the story. I wasn't there for part of it either. So, you know, you have, I'm retelling someone else's story. But basically, BSDI in the 90s watched what Sun was doing and really liked the concept of being able to distribute the operating system and their software on appliances. They wanted a hardware component to the business. So they ended up acquiring a small server hardware company, actually, that resides here still right next to IX, or well, started in the building right next to where IX headquarters is here in San Jose. So we're still kind of in that same campus, but um, they were called Telenet Systems. And so they acquired Telenet Systems to basically become the hardware division of BSDI. So BSDI subsumed them. Matt Olander was there at the time, and uh, as, as was Mike. And that went on for a few years. They had a you know modicum of success, but um, ironically, they ended up selling the software component to Wind River. And Wind River really wanted the embedded OS business because that was their largest BSDI was their largest competitor. They didn't want it for the technology. They actually wanted it to just sunset it so that it was kind of out of the way. And so they acquired the software business of BSDI, but they didn't want the hardware business. So the hardware business actually spun back out as IX Systems, actually. And so it lived on. And actually, IX Systems was a the hardware division uh, on its own, incorporated and did well, you know, maintained a lot of the hardware customers and things like that until, of course, the kind of the dot bomb in uh, 2000, 2001. I mean, they had, they they literally had, you know, customers like pets.com, you know what I mean? So the, 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 the infamous stories of the dot bomb era, you know, so they, they actually, that original IX systems company was kind of crushed under the weight of their receivables because they had so many customers go out of business that they basically just had to shut the doors. It was over the course of a, a few months. And the, some of the last folks that were asked to kind of close, close down the business were Matt Olander and Mike Law. And as they were kind of shuttering the doors, there were still some assets that the company wanted to sell. And I'm talking about like, you know, our assembly line, uh, you know, a beat up delivery van, you know, things like that. And so they basically just 
had a quiet bidding process to buy the the assets, which also would include the customer list, which was very small then. Um, but basically, Mike and Matt got together and they said, "Let's buy this." You know, I think we can still make a business of this. And so they bought that. They bought the assets of the formerly defunct IX Systems for seventy five thousand dollars and just kept it going. And so that was in two thousand. One, but they they couldn't use the IX Systems name because that that business was folding. So Matt, on the side, had his own web hosting business that he was kind of doing on the side, and it was called Off My Server. And it was called Off My Server because it was basically saying, "Oh, you're hosting your website off my server." That was the idea. And so they already had that incorporated, and they ended up saying, "Okay, well, let's just start the business. We'll just call it Off My Server." And so, but the, but off my server really was now a hardware business. Um, it was basically carrying the torch for my existence. And that's when I started. It was off my server. It was just in a bizarre message to customers. People were like, why the hell are you guys called off my server? I don't, I don't get it. We get that question all the time. And um, we, we stayed off my server, I think, for a couple of years. And then once the SEC winded down all the stock and everything on IX systems, we, oh, the, uh, the name became available again. And because we were totally bootstrapped, we didn't have any money for marketing collateral or anything. We still actually had in our warehouse all the IX system signs and, you know, we had the artwork and all that stuff. And we're like, wow, this is a really easy transition. We could transition back to this. Uh, but funny story, one of the things that happened when they incorporated IX systems originally, the initial IX systems way back in the 90s, um, when they spun out of BSDI, was they paid a marketing company a bunch of money to make the logo and come up with the name and all those things. And really the IX was the IX in Unix. Um, that's kind of, that, that was, I think the, the marketing company and the CEO at the time, and that's how they came up with it. And they said, ta-da, here we go. Uh, IX systems. And they come to, to, to Matt Olander and they're like, okay, Matt, go get us the URL. And he's like, the URL is not available. You can't get, you know, and they're like, oh my God, after spending all this money and time, they'd never thought to go look to see if the URL is available. So they end up having to get the dot, the .net is available. So they were ixsystems.net and they, they, they find who owns the URL for the .com and they go to him and they ask, it's, you know, just some, it was like a college kid. And they said, Hey, um, you know, do you want to sell this URL? And I think they eventually got up to fifty thousand or seventy-five thousand dollars offer just just to buy the URL. And the kid was, you know, just kind of an anti-establishment, rebellious kid. And I remember him just being like, uh, "The story is, he's like, you know, no f capitalism, whatever it was." And he just turns it down. So they end up with the .net. And so I tell that story when we decided to, you know, off my server wasn't really a great fit for what we were doing later. Uh, SEC winds on IX systems like we could take IX systems back. We go look, the dot com is available. He had just let it lapse, so we just we just grabbed the dot com for free, and we're like, oh, we we actually got the dot com, so we just ended up reincorporating back as IX systems. And so this is basically the second iteration of the name IX systems. Uh, but uh, well, I, I didn't mean to go that far afield with that story, but uh, but but yeah, so that's that's, that's kind of how it, it came to be initially, and then. You know, really, again, the focus at the beginning was selling that AstroFlow Guard appliance that I was telling you about, while also just maintaining that kind of legacy server business from the BSDI days. And so we actually still have customers today in 2022 that were BSDI customers in the 90s. So um, we still, man I mean, we've managed, that means we have managed the same account under the same roof in some cases for 25 years, probably. 
and you know been able to transition that. So we were able to take that small remaining BSDI customer base and really build it up as off my server and then IX systems and continue from there. And, and our focus, like I said earlier, was being the only game in town at the time that would certify hardware with with the obscure variants of open source uh, operating systems, which was which was unique. Nobody was doing that. So that's really how we made our niche. Yeah, it's really great to actually hear the story um, because, I mean, I've known that there was a link, but I didn't know exactly what it was. And it's interesting because when I've gone to conferences before and I mentioned, you know, I work at IX Systems, I'm like, oh, yeah, I've heard of that company. That's that's kind of a new company, right? I'm like, uh, no, actually, it's it's not. <laughs> but I've never known kind of the, the whole line to be able to explain it. But but now I do. Well, there's much more to that story. And it's actually it's you know, if you again, if you talk to Matt Olander about it, he's got all the details. I mean, you know, um, of just all the folks, all the open source luminaries mm -hmm. that that work there i mean there's the whole walnut creek cd rom part of the story that's that's not included there you know right now ix system still today is like a veritable history museum of of of, of FreeBSD and bsd technologies i mean we have box sets of you know bsd you've actually seen a lot of this stuff jt when you've been here um actually to believe it or not i've actually never made it to the corporate headquarters yet oh wow i thought you had well we we've sent some stuff out to tennessee which i've yeah. been out to that facility and um, but we have old BSDOS, you know, 2.1. I mean, I still, I was just in the back looking earlier and we have a bunch of stuff like that. We actually have the Beastie mascot costume. So the actual real one that would go to all the trade shows in the nineties. And so we have that stuff. We've got the big, huge Beastie plushies, but back then, I mean, Kirk McCusick was part of the company. I mean, there's, there's uh, so many people that were, uh, you know, Jordan Hubbard did two stints. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of history that's tied into just the foundation of open source, you know, more, more related to BSD, but, um, and FreeBSD, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's ripe with history here. And again, all in this kind of, this campus of buildings that we're in here now too. So it's, it's pretty cool. On the, the stories of, uh, of early days at IX, I do want to sit down with Matt at some time and, and pick his brain because I know that there are just numerous stories that are going to come out once I can actually get him talking about it. But there's one I, I do want to ask you, and you can defer this to Matt if you want to, but I have heard rumors that at one point in IX's history, there were some like Mission Impossible style antics where people were trying to get into a building through a window. Oh, wow. Does this ring a bell <laughs> or is this just? Oh, yeah. I was I was present okay. for that. Um, that, is, that is all very true. Yeah, so part of the part of the ix story actually that i just often kind of leave out because it's it, it it does get a little salacious but there is uh, there were originally three founders and um one of them is no longer with us i'm, I'm just kidding i, I, I didn't I, man, I, was, I was trying to make that sound ominous you know there were originally three founders it was mike matt another guy roger and uh they just had a falling out early on and to the point where there was, uh, I'll put it say, I showed up to work one day and Mike and Matt are in the parking lot and we're locked out of the building. And there's a hired security that's there patrolling the building. Oh, I, when I rolled up it, sorry, it was Mike, Matt and the police. Um, okay. So the police were there too. And, <laughs> and uh, I was like, what is going on here? The story was that Roger had decided that 
you know, there was a dispute actually that had gone on the week before. Basically, they had a partnership dispute and mm-hmm. and basically they'd let Roger go. They decided they were going to de- divest him of the partnership and all these things. And it was really contentious the, the week before. I think it was a Friday or something like that. So then over the weekend, Roger took possession of the building and changed all the locks and had security there. And so uh, the police were called before I'd gotten there by Mike and Matt because they were like, what the hell? We're trying to conduct business here. This was 2003 or okay. something like that. Mike and Matt are showing the police paperwork that they're the ones who actually run the business, et cetera. And, and, and the police are like, well, you know, I'm seeing the same paperwork from the guy who's inside there too. So look, this is a civil matter. This isn't a police matter. But, he, but he's like, you know, it looks to me like on your paperwork that you actually lay claim to this building. So he's like, there's, I remember the police officer said, so there's nothing that I can do to stop you since it's a private property from, I don't know, driving your motorcycle through that window right there or throwing a cinder block through that window. I mean, the, the police officer literally said that. And we we all kind of looked at each other like, oh, OK, they're kind of giving us permission to break back into the building. Yeah, I'm pretty and sure if you break into your so, house, it's not breaking and entering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's all the whole possession is nine tenths of the law thing, too. So I, we weren't sure, but it looked like we were getting the green light. So um, so we were sat there and we went and we're, we're we were scheming on the way to break into the building. And, you know, the one thing that I think that uh, that I remember gave us comfort was that, you know, Matt managed the the IT infrastructure. So it it protected all the things that were very important, critical to the, running the business, right? We wanted to make sure that, you know, databases weren't being deleted and customer information wasn't being deleted or our order or accounting system wasn't being tampered with. And so that was all really locked down. And, and so we felt comfort in that. So we thought it's okay if they have position of the, possession of the physical building. Of course, we can't manufacture things until we get that back, but at least, you know, the very sensitive data is going, is, is more or less protected unless they figure out how to bring in some Unix expert to come in and break through the network with local access, which, you know, wouldn't have been impossible, but, you know, would have, they could have done it. So we're having that conversation in the parking lot. We're trying to figure out, are we going to drive the motorcycle through the window? Or are we going to throw the, the cinder block through the window, whatever it is? And then all of a sudden this car pulls up and this guy gets out. And I remember Matt saying, oh no, they got a Unix expert to break into the network. And the guy walks up to the door, he knocks, and the security who, who is, you know, patrolling the building, they unlock the door and they open it to talk to the guy. And I go, this is our chance. This is our chance right here. We got it. Now we got the doors open. Let's, let's go. We're kind of hemming and hawing. And I'm like, no, go, go. We have to go. We go. So we run towards the building and we push this poor guy out of the way and we, we you know, bum rush the security and we end up kind of you know, forcing our way into the building. And when we get inside, you know, we're like, now we're, you know, now we're inside the premises. So, you know, we're okay. And of course the police get called again to, because now there's a disturbance. So they who have possession of the building are calling the police on us now. Um, So the same cop comes back out there and he's like, oh my God, guys. He's like, there's nothing I can do about this. He's like, you guys got to, so you guys got to figure this out, you know, civilly. So we had to sit there in the building with the other folks in the building as well, just to make sure they wouldn't go touch the network. So we were in there for, I think we lived in the building for several days, all t- together collectively in this really awkward, you know, um, uh, roommate 
situation that we had. And, uh, and so, yeah, eventually it ended up being worked out and, you know, there was, it didn't have to go to civil court or anything like that. And everything was more or less amicably divested, but it did take months and it was a shame, but we did. It's absolutely true. We had to do this clandestine operation to break back in and then live there for a few days, which is actually the, the way worse part of it. And it turns out the guy who was knocking on the door there was actually we had forgotten we invited a vendor our memory vendor there to come give us a presentation so it was just a guy who was representing our our who was wintech industries at the time um I, I he was just a guy coming to give a presentation and the poor guy got shoved out of the way and i had to needless to say i don't think that really helped our vendor relationship going forward but the, he was okay he was unharmed but still it just was a really awkward looking situation for him to be showing up at the building and that going on so uh, yeah, it was a crazy story. We actually have, this was before, I didn't know one had a video camera or anything. Um, but Mike Loth had a, had a still camera. And so we actually have three pictures of the actual breaking into the building as it's taking place. <laughs> um, I, physical pictures, I might even have them here somewhere in my office. Um, they're pretty funny, but it's just showing the security trying to keep us out and are trying to force us trying to force our way in. And, and, uh, They'll go. They'll go in the uh, in the book we write someday. It'll be great. It'll yeah, be I actually actually needs a book. I know Sun Sun did a couple books about their their company history. So yeah, it's about time for IX to do one. Yeah. Well, the other question would be, when's the uh, Netflix adaptation going to come out? Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, Matt's always talked about writing a book. We actually for a while toyed with the idea of doing a. Matt really wanted to do a uh, a reality show. That was called. Uh, God, what what did he call it? Shoot, I forget the name he had for it. But you know, you know how they have uh, West Coast Chopper, and you know, the, the, back then, you know, this is we're talking about like mid two thousands, probably, because it was a pretty crazy environment around IX. Like I said, people, some people were living there. You know what I mean? It was a, a lot of family was working there early on, things like that. And so it was it was a pretty crazy environment, and it would have made for good TV, to be honest. Um, was, yeah, I mean, Halt and Catch Fire season five. I mean, you know, that could get greenlit, right? <laughs> exactly. So he, he wanted to have a camera following us around the whole time. And uh, I was actually just trying to build the business. So it was less interesting to me. But man, it probably would have been a great idea had we done it. And it would have been pretty entertaining. Um, but uh, but no, we never did it. Gosh, I forget the name that he was he was going to use for it. Again, another, another another question from Matt when he comes on. Yeah. Um, so to, to pull back, mm -hmm. you know, those days you obviously had your hands in the business. And you mentioned earlier that nowadays you're kind of your hands are kind of on the business. For you, where was that where was that kind of transition point between where you felt you started to do more of one than the other? You know, for me, it was a lot of learning to relinquish control. You know, as as you start a business and you're only four people, you're I'm I was used to doing so many things. Talking, you know, the, the whole wearing different hats cliche. I mean, I was we didn't have people to clean the bathroom. So we 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 if we wanted that done. Uh, then we had to do it, which just means that we didn't do it. So it means we had just a terribly filthy bathroom because that was that was reality. But but still, I mean, that just to illustrate the picture of you know, I had to learn accounting. I had to learn uh, I had to learn HTML to, to manage our website. You know, there was all sorts of things that that I just had to do to just to keep the lights on, and we all kind of had to had to have that mentality. And so as we grow pulling back from that was, was challenging, um, for me. 
and because I, I I was capable of doing all the things. And so, you know, why not? Right. So that meant just working 80 hours a week. And instead of training people, it was, you know, I'm talking about really early days, but, you know, instead of training people to do things, it's just, ah, I can do that myself, you know, and that's a common thing that I see, you know, I saw with our engineers too. We have really super capable engineers. It's, a, it's, it's difficult as things scale. So we, I had some of those, those issues. And really for me, it just came down to, I'm, it's just not scalable, right? The business, while I can do all these things and I'm capable in all these areas, I'm holding the business back ultimately because so many things are now blocked at me. And so once we just got to a certain size, I just had to just relinquish more and more of that control. And really it's been about growing and, and bringing great people on that VPs that report into me that and their individual disciplines have much deeper experience than I do and are very, very good. They're incredibly capable in those areas. And so for me, that's been kind of the last bastion was being able to level up and think just more long range strategic as opposed to day to day because I have, you know, those those major departments covered now and aren't reliant on me to also figure out what we're doing tactically. It's been a huge just win for the company, frankly, and for me and uh, just been a great transition from feeling like I was accountable for every single detail of every single thing we do and just being able to know that we have teams of people that are now capable of doing all of these things and uh, don't need me. It's a great feeling. And then I never really thought that working on the business, because I like being tactical, I like dealing in operations, I like being an operator. So relinquishing that was kind of also the, the last thing for me is just realizing that building the business, building the culture by working on it as opposed to in it was actually something I'm, that I'm even more passionate about. So I don't know. It's just always, I love, I love picking up new things and tackling new challenges and climbing that next mountain. And, um, and it's just been a, a long progression of, of being able to do that here at IX, which, which has been great. So one of the things that I love about open source is that any and every idea can be tried. It's like an infinite sandbox that everybody can play in and dabble in and do whatever. But due to that very fact, there are inevitably going to be missteps, bad executions, really bad directions that a project or a company decides to go in. And then they realize, oh, okay, that was that was not good. And I mean, I think IX isn't unique. You know, there have been missteps in the past, just like with every business. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the time, I see that those missteps can actually spell the end for a company or a project. Whereas, you know, IX has had some missteps in the past, but yet they've been able to handle it, recover, and then excel out of that. Is there something unique to the people at IX or the way IX views the business that has allowed them to do that when there have been those missteps? It's a good question. Uh, you know, um, I think if I really think about you know, one of our core values is a bootstrap mindset. And it's because that's how we've chosen to build our business, right? We've shunned VC, we've shunned outside investment. And, uh, and, and it, it really is a, it's a mentality or a mindset of the founders and the founding team to just be resilient. To me, bootstrapping means like being able to just be resourceful and, and figure out a way, find a way to get something done with minimal resources, right? And so it just means that you have a level of grit, I think, and kind of a staying power 
and stamina for things that others maybe a, even a tolerance and maybe even it's it's you know not um not healthy to be to be honest but um but you know just just the amount of, of punishment and abuse that 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 maybe we're able to withstand um but i think it's just a resilience and a grit that it's you know starts at the founder level and we've attracted other folks to the team as we've scaled right other folks to the company that have that recognize that see that identify with that and possess that that mindset themselves so i i think that that's just, it's just the people, you know, I think a lot of us on the founding team have, have come up through kind of hard, hard scrabble, kind of hard knock up, upbringings. And we just continue to carry that with us as, as we go. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's been pretty amazing. There's been a number of times in our 20 year history where we've been pushed to the brink and still been able to fight our way back. Um, and some of it's just, just good fortune too. I don't want to just say that, you know, we're uniquely powerful. That's not the case at all. Right. But it's, you know, so we've had some, some things have broken well for us too. So definitely luck has played into it in some occasions too. But man, I also am a firm believer that you kind of make your luck and we've always been just hard workers and people that don't just kind of have that never say die attitude and have believed, you know, just really believed in what we were doing and the approach we were taking to market. And and believed in open source before anybody really did outside of just people who are in the community, right? Certainly businesses weren't believing in open source necessarily in any kind of any kind of real deep way uh, as they are today. So yeah, we had a vision, we wanted to stick to it, you know, and and we had that never say that attitude and it was in, in a little bit of luck along the way. And that those combination of things, I think, just have worked for us. And Again, like I said, as we continue to add talent, we look for those things. We look for that bootstrap mindset, that that grit that people have, because those people do really well here and thrive here and and love the environment uh, as well. At least that's what I hear. So, so yeah, that's kind of the off the off the cuff answer there. Yeah. So for I guess I should give a little context to where I was, where mm -hmm. my mind was thinking, because obviously both of us being at IX, our brains immediately go to the ten release. Oh, okay. But I, some people listening might not be thinking of that. So I kind of wanted to, to bring that in. But like specific to that, you know, the Corral release was, I think it's fair to say contentious. But IX, you know, bounced back. There was the 11.0 release. There was the 12.0 release. Those True Command, the new product came out. There's been recently the 13.0 release. And of course, you know, now scale. So the company really bounced back from that. But again, that was kind of a, an inflection point where things could have gone either direction. Yeah. But the company was able to. Yeah, see. that's we, we we've gone this far. I don't even think I've said the word pre NAS or true NAS yet. Um, which is which is pretty pretty amazing. I think we've been talking so much about history, etc. But yeah, we never even really told the story about how we ended up um ended up managing the the pre NAS project. But um, I can tell a little bit about that story as a precursor to the pre NAS ten story. Yeah, yeah. So, please I do. Mean, as we'd always been heavily involved in in FreeBSD in the community, you know, um, I think uh, Matt was, you know, the head of marketing for FreeBSD for a while. Um, and we've always been closely tied to the FreeBSD Foundation, all these things. And so IX Systems, just on our own dollar, we would fly the FreeBSD booth around to conferences around the world. And we would just man the FreeBSD booth and it, and mm -hmm. we wouldn't do it with IX shirts on or anything. We were just doing it to just be good members of the community. And um, so we did that for, probably about 15 years. And so we were just really well known, I think, especially in the, in the BSD community as being just good corporate sponsors, just good 
community members and, and not doing it for really any sort of commercial reason, but we were just in, and we, we had engineers on staff and we were contributing code, even though we were just a hardware company, we were still giving back in every single way, you know, also making donations, uh, you know, monetary donations as well. So doing everything we could to be a good steward, a good, you know, a member of the community. And I remember in, I think it was around 2009, so Olivier Cachard Lab, who, uh, who was the original creator, the founder of, of FreeNAS. He's the, he's the original developer of FreeNAS. Actually, I think this is a pretty interesting story. And I'll get back to the FreeNAS 10 thing, because this is something. That's fine. We can, we can go down as many trails as we want. Okay. We'll pop the stack and get our way back. Okay, cool. So, so yeah, because this is a, an interesting story. So at that time, I think it was FreeNAS 0.7 was the, the, the current version. So it still had not really made a 1.0, but it was incredibly popular, I think, even back then. And, you know, it was basically created in 2005 and became really usable in 2007. And so I had a community built around it. I definitely had a lot of users and had a very small kind of team of developers that were contributing to it. But mostly it was Olivia. I mean, you know, I'd say a majority of the contributions were from Olivia even then. But they had a couple of other developers. And Olivier, I think by 2009, he had a day job, he had other interests. And so he he was kind of letting the community run itself. And at that point, the community had said, oh, we want to throw FreeBSD out. We don't want BSD to be the underlying operating system. We want it to be Linux. And um, Olivier, when he got word of that, you know, he's a big fervent member of the FreeBSD community as well. And, you know, he was uh, passionate about FreeBSD. He wanted to stay on FreeBSD. And he, he basically came to Matt Olander and said, you know, Matt, do you want to, like, I, we need somebody to manage this community. I can't do it anymore. They want to move to, to Linux. And at around at about this time, ZFS was being ported into FreeBSD. And so we really saw an opportunity to say like, oh, wow, well, if, if, if you want us to manage it, we're happy to do that. We'll put developer resources on it. And, you know, it was written in PHP initially. And so it was the the UI was getting long in the tooth. We saw a lot of opportunities for being able to improve it and just carry it on. And really not for any commercial reason whatsoever, just really wanted to make sure also that it stayed with FreeBSD. And then we just continued to develop this awesome product that so many people used. And as, as a hardware company, we were constantly selling FreeNAS servers, you know, just servers with FreeNAS embedded on it or installed on it to a lot of our customers anyway. So we knew the software well. We used it internally. All of our internal storage was based on FreeNAS at the time. So it was like a no-brainer for us. And we had all these great ideas. Wow, if we if we just if we upgrade the operating system, that'll give us access to ZFS. We can integrate integrate all the, the ZFS goodness into the product. We can revamp the UI. We can give it, a, you know, we can put on something more modern. Be super cool, right? And so that's that's how we started working with with FreeNAS. And so Matt said, "Sure, Lydia, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll be happy to do that. We'll take that." So the there were some community members, in particular, there were two developers I won't name, but they, there were two developers in the community that were unhappy with this decision. These were the guys that were really driving the uh, desire to move to Linux, and they ended up forking. FreeNAS at the time um, into basically two other competing products. One was called NAS for free at the time. They were that mad that they were just trying to abscond with the name too. But the reason, the real reason why there was bad blood about this was because when we changed the UI, we from 0.7 to 8.0, there used to be a donate button 
in the corner of the UI for FreeNAS 0.7. And that donate button, we found out when we changed the UI, that donate button was going to one of those developers' individual PayPal account. Oh. This is the part of the story that is not often not told about the uh, about the uh, the fork of, of FreeNAS. So, yeah, so we really ruffled some feathers by creating a new UI and not having a donate button. We actually did no donate button at all. We thought it was a little tacky. You know what I mean? We contribute code, contribute by being a member of the community. That's how we felt about it. Um, you know, we, we're, a, we're a company, we have money, we can, we can fund this stuff. We don't need to be asking for handouts. So, and we didn't do it really as any kind of way to, to upset that person. But of course, inadvertently, it was, you know, it hit a revenue stream for that individual, which created a fork. So maybe we could have handled that a little bit differently in retrospect, you know, and, and uh, made a little softer landing for that, for that person. But because it did create a fork and it created some vitriol and it created some haters, frankly, um, for FreeNAS. And they carried on that original 0.7 code. And who knows, maybe that product today still has a donate button that uh, that goes to that person's account. I don't know. Um, I, do, I do not know that. And that's there's no longer an ads for free anymore. Um, they've changed. They've rebranded. So anyway, um, so that's that's kind of how that all got started. But it's our first experience in, I mean, look, we've seen a lot of spats in open source. So we all have. Anyone who's been paying attention to open source, you've seen your fair share of spats. It's, not a day goes by without being able to observe one, right? Developer turns out developers have have egos that are wrapped into this stuff. Who knew? Um, but uh, but it was kind of our first direct experience with a conflict like that, and it, it sucked for us because we were we were just trying to we thought we were doing what was right by the open source community, and you know to create enemies. It was just kind of a bummer for for us as members and contributors to the open source community. We never really wanted to to do that, but uh, hey, it, it happens. So, anyways, we ended up integrating uh, ZFS into version eight. So we, the first version we released was 8.0 and it had a brand new UI and it was Django based. And it was a, it was a UI uh, built by engineers who don't use UIs, I would call it. Uh, you probably, you, I see you, you, you nodding JT. So you, you're agreeing. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it, it was better. I mean, it was in some ways it was better. It was cleaner. It was, you know, it was newer, um, but it definitely left a lot. I think the way to say that would be it was functional (laughs) and then put a period there and then that's it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it was, you know, it's a little prettier looking. I think we could agree with that, but I think in terms of functionality, it left some to be desired. I mean, really the way I described it as a UI developed by people who didn't use UIs is, uh, is a good, good descriptor, but the, the bottom line, what we wanted to do was really level it up. We were turning it from a sort of a, prosumer enthusiast storage NAS operating system that you could also use at work. That's how I think of FreeNAS 0.7. It was like, you know, most people are going to use it in their home labs and stuff like that, but they could also use it at the office to really now with the addition of ZFS, we were making a completely enterprise capable NAS that, oh, by the way, you could also use in your home lab. So it was kind of, we were flipping it a little bit. And that's when we really realized that there was a business model there because at this time, Sun was being acquired by Oracle. And one of the many gifts that Sun gave the world was throwing ZFS over the wall and open sourcing it and making sure that it was available in open source and the CDDL for all to love and use before it became possession of, of Oracle, who probably would have had no reason or interest to open source it. So that was a, that was a beautiful gift. And it allowed us to create this 
super powerful NAS operating system, basically, from this prosumer beginning. And so it was really great. But yes, integrating the ZFS functionality was step one. UI was always kind of like the 10th thing on the list. And so we just wanted to make sure that it was secure and safe and kept data safe and all the things that it needed to do to really be used in an enterprise environment. So that's kind of how all that got started. We up-leveled it with FreeNAS 9, made some improvements to the UI. You know, it still left some, some functionality to be desired. But, you know, again, at this point, it started to be really get notoriety as, wow, this is an incredibly powerful piece of software that you can use. And man, I mean, you really can install this on an x86 system and you're 80% of the way to a NetApp, you know, in terms of functionality, certainly in terms of data protection and data resilience and things like that. But in terms of functions, even it was pretty close to being there. Preamble to, to your answer your question of FreeNAS 10. So have you heard of something called second system syndrome? I've heard people refer to it, but I've never really understood the concept behind the, the phrase. Yeah, it really is a mentality of any engineer if you're coming in and you're inheriting somebody else's work to just say you know what it's easier to just blow all this instead of trying to iterate on someone else's thing it's, it'll be way easier if we just scrap this and we start from the beginning and i'll be i'll have it done in a weekend you know what i mean i'll be able to get this done in a weekend that's like a that's like a refrain you hear in open source that, that's one that, that and i hear from still from engineers today, I'll get it done in a weekend. But especially in open source, a lot of people are working on their weekends, right? Over The overestimation of what can be done in, in two days. But um, so it's basically the, the idea that it's the Duke Nukem 3D story, right? Um, which is take 10 years to develop this game that was supposed to take a year and it come out and it's a, and it's, uh, a steaming pile, right? Um, and and But it's it's really the idea that We've learned so much in creating this first system that if we could go back in time and you know do things differently, we would do it this way. And we build this thing that is so is going to be imminently better and you know more robust and all of the things. And so it's this really this compulsion that that I think engineers and, and product managers will have this too to start from scratch, create this new thing. It's going to be so much better. But the reality of the situation is that especially if you're a commercial operation or if you have users, et cetera, you're going to maroon users. You're going to alienate customers while you work on this next beautiful, great thing. And, but you also still have to maintain that other thing um, while you do this. And so it creates factions, right? You've got the new team versus the old team. And so we saw this really play out here at IX with, with FreeNAS. We had the FreeNAS 9 team, and then we had this other team that was working on FreeNAS 10, which was going to be the next latest and greatest thing. And, you know, it was really done without any kind of requirements document. It wasn't a PRD and an MRD. It was just kind of like us starting from scratch with just engineers unfettered, design this product in, in the way that you would make the ro most robust system, knowing what we know now from, you know, FreeNAS 7 and 8 and 9. And so instead of Iterating on what FreeNAS 9 was, which was an incredibly solid foundation for 10, it was just like, no, we're scrapping that. We're gonna we're gonna in integrate things from Plan 9. Just bizarre decisions that went that went here, kind of in this um, in this echo chamber of engineering that uh, that was just kind of operating on its own inside the company. But people were excited about it, right? I mean, the promise of what FreeNAS 10 was going to deliver from you know, containers to 
you know, virtualization to this weird, you know, kind of accordion UI and all the things that we had taught and we talked it up and we had um, an en engineering leadership at the time that had, you know, some pretty significant cachet and sway in the open source community. And so people, you know, that got us a lot of buzz when, when he joined. And so all of those things were created this excitement or enthusiasm around this. And of course, the initial scope of that project was we'll be able to launch this in six months. And then we were essentially three and a half years later and the product still hadn't been launched. And at that point, you know, we had the engineering leadership that was in charge of this decided that he was kind of done, done with IX, ready to leave. And so right before that happened, took FreeNAS 10, threw it over the wall and released it. And the product was far, still far from ready. I mean, we, this is a ground up redesigned version. We, we gave it the name FreeNAS Corral because we wanted to, actually, we wanted to actually rebrand FreeNAS. FreeNAS, from a commercial perspective, having free in the name was really difficult to sell. You know what I mean? If, if you've ever, FreeBSD had this, the exact same problem um, going commercial, which was free is nobody wants to pay a dollar or a penny for free, right? They assume that free means it's not good um, or not of high quality. Uh, people don't have great associations with that word when it comes to actually, you know, running a commercial operation. So we, we were already trying to rebrand anyway. FreeNAS Corral is going to be the bridge brand. We thought we could change it to Corral, Corral Data. You know, it was kind of the idea there. But it was FreeNAS 10. It was version 10, basically. But it was a, an entirely new, ground-up, redesigned product that was basically launched probably still a year too soon. And there was the team on the FreeNAS 9 side that was looking over the wall of the walled garden that was FreeNAS 10 and saying, this, this shit is not ready. Like, you know, and so we're getting that too. But again, they, there's two factions in the company and they were basically warring factions, right? FreeNAS 9 versus FreeNAS 10 team. And um, so it was difficult to know. Truth is the first casualty in war, right? So it's, it's impossible to know what's really going on. Um, both sides were throwing stones at each other and we were, you know, trusting in the engineering leadership to make sure they did the right thing. And it wasn't until it was released that it really came to light just at how unfinished it was. And the biggest concern for us is that their trust that the community has in IX systems, it took us a long time to even build that. When we took over FreeNAS 9, it was the, oh God, the evil corporate overlords are coming to take over the open source project and they're going to close source the software and they're going to do all these evil things. And it took us at that point, we were seven years in, and there's still sort of that hesitancy and hesitation about IX and really our our our, our aims. You know, our, you know, were we just suddenly overnight going to change and and close source? You know, so there was still that consternation that we were just overcoming after all this time. And so we were concerned when we released this product the fact that it was possibly going to jeopardize data. Um, and that was the biggest thing. We were telling people, go ahead and install. This is release. A, you know, this is a release quality product. Go ahead and put your production data on it. And within a week or two, we knew, oh, God, what have we done? And so we had to make an incredible one of the most difficult decisions ever since I've been here, which was to unrelease a product after that, after all the buzz that we've created, after all the articles that we've written, after all the anticipation in the community 
and the world and and, and the, the people who are paying attention to this stuff to have to unrelease that and basically with no transition plan for anybody who would because it was a brand new software there was no transition back to freenas 9 you know so basically if you'd moved your data there it was a one-way ticket and it was incredibly hard i i didn't sleep for weeks months i mean i i it actually gave me health problems dealing dealing with that situation because at that after the engineering leadership released it they immediately left within weeks afterwards so we were kind of left holding the bag and i had to sit there and take all the arrows from the you know it was, it was myself it was chris moore we had to stand up and go stand behind this decision to have to unrelease the product and people hated us <laughs> and because it's it's ix you know they don't they don't know all the internal stuff that's going on here so yeah and, and rightly so right i mean we asked them to trust IX and we did that stuff. So we had to go and stand up and take all the arrows from the community and, and all the vitriol and all the, you know, and, and then work as hard as we could to, to rebuild that trust and do what we basically do what we should have done in, to begin with, not waste that three years trying to build that second system. We should have just continued to build on this strength of the foundation of free NAS nine, which was a completely capable and solid product and had a great foundation and that's what that team had been screaming to do the whole time. And in retrospect, it was the right call. And we made the wrong call in allowing FreeNAS 10 to kind of see the light of day. And we should have just built on FreeNAS 9 because that's what we were able to do and um, move, moving the product forward. And FreeNAS 11, FreeNAS 12, FreeNAS 13 are all still built on that same solid bedrock foundation of FreeNAS 9 as opposed to this brand new thing. And even as we launch scale, the middleware is same middleware right so you're talking about a bulletproof middleware that's been around forever uh, now and uh and been able to just carry on that legacy of stability which is what people want out of storage right they want stability and reliability um the shiny thing it's shiny stuff is cool but um but just please keep my data safe and so that's that was the right call and in retrospect about a time machine we would have never let free nas 10 continue and I was the one voice in the room that was was trying to call that, but my voice wasn't wasn't loud enough or strong enough at that point. So, so it it uh, it happened, and you know it, it it was the closest we've come to breaking as a company for sure. Because um, again, the the violation of the trust of the community that we built up for so long, it took it took years, and I think there's still people that don't trust us because of that, and and rightly so, but. Uh, and I can't really fault them, I guess, after after this. But it took us years to really get back in the good graces of our own community after that. And and that was a significant lesson learned. Yeah. Mo I think most people look at a storage appliance of you have one job and it's to make sure my data is still there. I mean, I, I came to IX uh, as a contractor in 2016 and I was working on the True Command project when it just started. So I was there to kind of watch that, but thankfully I was like, the, ooh, glad that's not what I'm touching. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I mean, unreleasing is, is definitely got to be hard, but at the same time, I mean, yes, obviously people are going to be very upset, but I think in general, there's kind of a respect that people will have when you can come out and say, okay, yeah, we effed up. That was a, that was a bad one. Because, I mean, let's be honest, that's incredibly rare this day, especially for companies, to actually be willing to say, yeah, we screwed up here. Here's what we're doing to make it better. Because it seems that the general pattern is just for companies to double down and be like, no, 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 this is actually really great. And here's why. 
instead of like, no, your entire customer base is saying it's not great. Maybe, maybe you should listen because they're the ones using it in the real world. No, totally. I, I, and that was a, that was a, we'd always been a transparent company, right? I mean, as an open source company, you, you don't really have any other, I mean, to try to not be transparent is, is probably the death knell of, you know, at least the trust that you have in building a community. But so we knew there was going to be no other way out of that. And this is how we just sort of deal with anything that we screw up is we just have to own it. Right. And we have to stand up and say, yes, we screwed that up, but guess what? We're here to pick up the pieces and we're going to here to make it right. And we, we did everything and we unreleased it relatively quickly. It was only out in the wild for a few weeks. So we did that as made that decision as quickly as we ultimately could. So that was helpful too. But yeah, I mean, owning it was the, I mean, that's a philosophy I have in, in life as a person who screwed a lot of stuff up uh, throughout my, my existence. Um, I've learned that, you know, this saying you're sorry and uh, admitting to the, the issue and owning it and taking accountability and then figuring out how to make it right is, is the, the fastest path to, to, uh, to maintaining your, your integrity at minimum, but also to fixing the problem. So, um, so yeah, we, that's exactly what we had to do. And, and it was, uh, it was Chris and I, and I remember we did an ask an AMA on Reddit, and I'm sure that still exists out there. You can see the sort of stones that were thrown at us that we had to ultimately just sit there and and take. So yeah, it's uh, was a was a significant lesson learned. It was very tough on the company, but I think ultimately was a significant learning lesson, and ultimately I think fortified us. For that next phase in in our in our in our history since then, um, which has made us a, a much stronger company than we were, a much smarter company than we were um, back then. So, you know, I, I, as in all things that I've screwed up in my life, I've tried to make them uh, uh, lessons for you know uh, any kind of failure whatsoever. Is just that's a good lesson in how not to do it next time, right? Mm-hmm. So. That's, uh... Yeah, definitely. And, you know, there's also kind of the aspect of if you've never made a mistake in your life, you probably haven't really done either much noteworthy or much interesting. I mean, I know for myself, mistakes that I've made have been they're the biggest growth points. You know, there's that old line of, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I think that applies for companies as well as as individuals. Now, looking forward to you know, Linux, FreeBSD, and open source in general, what are the things that you see kind of being developed or improved on that you look at and I go, you go, okay, this is really cool. And I'm looking forward to where this is going to be able to take us. You know, well, I think about it really more from a business perspective, honestly, than I do from the tech. I mean, there's a million awesome things happening in open source technology, but I really think about it from a, where is humanity going, you know, and where is, where ultimately is open source technology as a movement going to take us? And I think that's really interesting. All the time and effort that a lot of co- commercial companies spend patenting things and, and you know, on, on intellectual property law, we actually just spend that time and energy to making a better product and not defending patents and suing people. And even though we have been sued ourselves, and open source, frankly, is the tool by which we're able to actually win those lawsuits, frankly. But so I think like just the energy spent and less litigation, being able to build better tech and 
let that be the thing that wins as opposed to who's the fastest to rush to patent something. Um, I think that's just better for technology. It's better for the end user. It's better for society because it's really just a race to, to be able to build the better tech and the better business model around that. So I think about it from that level, like so Tesla, for example, I, I love, you know, when they opened their, their patents for the cars, I mean, it, it, because if you think about it from Elon's perspective, all these companies, SpaceX, Tesla, the boring company, um, these are about populating Mars. Really, the mission is how do we terraform and populate Mars because we need to be able to be interplanetary. And all of those companies are just building blocks on how to get there. So for him, you know, he's and for Tesla, they're thinking, oh, we open source our bat battery technology. We open source all of these things so that hopefully other companies can actually use those and make better technology and accelerate the creation of better technology for everybody. And guess what? That's going to help us get to Mars faster. I mean, you know, there's always going to be other another car competitor, right? There's always going to be somebody who's going to make a different car, or a better car, or whatever. And 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 hopefully they take that as the building block and don't have to solve the same problem twice and use that to accelerate the creation of their own car technology. And guess what? Hope by the way of them opening their patents, they said if you use these, you cannot patent it as well. So then people will then be able to take those and build on those. And it just becomes this this viral method of creating technology that's just a catalyst, it's an accelerant again to getting to that mission of getting to Mars. So I, I see it as that's the thing that is super interesting is just as more and more companies wake up to the power of open source. You know, you look at Microsoft. I mentioned Steve Ballmer calling Linux a cancer now, and you look at them as maybe the biggest contributor to open source period anymore, you know, the acquisition of GitHub, you know, those kinds of things. And, or at least being a facilitator for open source technology is just a great story in how technology and the world has transitioned its thinking about open source. And that's really super exciting to me. And I would love to see other companies follow suit and patent less and and develop more and innovate more that's where i'm i'm super excited about it i think yeah i was i was lucky enough to be at uh red hat summit in 2019 when um satya nadella came on and he had a conversation with jim whitehurst about open source and there was a moment i was able to get a picture of where you know they're actually both shaking hands and it's like go back 20 years you never would have expected the ceo of microsoft to be sitting down with the CEO of an open source company and both of them agreeing together. Like that would, that would never have come into your, you know, mind as, oh yeah, this is going to happen. It's a beautiful thing. But, you know, it has. So you, you kind of mentioned, you kind of answered my next question, but looking from the human perspective of where open source can take us, you, you mentioned the patent aspect, but are there other things that you feel like the community of open source and the developers and those that are working in the industry that we aren't focused on that perhaps we should actually be looking at and thinking of how we can improve them? Oh, well, um, one of the things I think I noticed, I kind of alluded to earlier, was just kind of contention I see in open source communities. And I think of things like just diplomacy. As open source facilitates folks from anywhere and any background to work together collaboratively on, you know, on the on collective innovation i think that you know i see a lot of lack of 
diplomacy between folks or really an inability to communicate properly um, create a lot of needless effort. A lot of times you'll see, and what I mean by that is a lot of times you'll see small argument in an open source community between two individuals create a fork of a project. And really it's just over a disagreement or a you know, personality conflict or something like that. And now we have duplicative effort, potentially even creating very similar products because people don't get along. And, um, you know, I know there's been, I watched uh, the whole code of conduct conflagration that happened in FreeBSD. And so that's kind of an attempt to figure out how to, how to manage that. But, you know, to me, it's, I don't know how to solve that, honestly. I mean, my, my thought around code of conduct is FreeBSD ended up trying to create it or, you know, created a, a very complicated code of conduct. You know, for me, it's really like code of conduct could have been three clause, like the, like the BSD license, which is don't let it get personal, keep it civil, keep it productive about the code, something like that could have been that simple. And then you can always refer to those three basic principles to be able to manage a community. And so just simplifying that way and making it as simple as possible. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, th I think those things matter. I think like that human element can't be overlooked or understated in in just, I mean, I have to imagine those 60 million GitHub projects, how many of those are just, you know, were created out of spite, you know, <laughs> from an argument? How many of those are created because they had a difference of opinion? And that's cool too. I mean, it's okay to have a difference of opinion. It's okay to fork something and, it, you know, and prove that it's better. I mean, that's that's fine too. But it also kind of can fragment things unnecessarily. And, and so instead of approaching that, question jt from like a technical perspective and saying here's a here's a corner of you know technology that could be tackled that way i just think more on that kind of philosophical interpersonal communication that's my background is in communication in the university too so maybe that's why i think about things that way but i think it's kind of a neglected element i think at the end of the day though if we're honest the whole point of all of this is to make people's lives better so if we're completely throwing that aspect out the window and not even paying attention to it what what are we even doing? That's right. And you know, that's another thing actually. Um, it's actually commonplace, not only really in open source and or just in engineering or just in tech, um, which is not considering the audience enough, not considering, you know, that's I think that's a problem, right? When you're and, and that that can be anything from that interpersonal conversation that you're having, that argument you're having with another developer in the community, but it also is really when you're engineering a product too. I talked about FreeNAS 8 when we created that. We created a UI for people who use UIs, but except it was built by people who didn't use UIs. So it's like you end up creating a product that's that nobody's happy with, right? And it started with not really considering our audience well enough, which was, you know, having somebody in the room that could really speak for the person who actually is going to be using it. And I think so many products are created in vacuums like that. Um, and if you don't have the mentality to, to consider your audience first, and this, again, it's when you're creating anything, right? You're creating art, you're creating music, you're creating, and of course, creating for creating sake, no problem with that, right? Like I play guitar in my bedroom and, and nobody hears it. And that's, that's totally cool too. But if I'm trying to create something that other people want to listen to, or people want to use, I have to consider, um, you know, who I'm, who I'm speaking to, uh, who are, who I'm creating for. And I think that I think that's something that people engineers should think about that human element, um, especially if they're trying to commercialize a product that's so critical. But it's often an afterthought. And I think if it was if you started there, it's just a shortcut, frankly, to creating 
ultimately a better, more usable, more loved product, whether or not you're trying to commercialize it or not. So that's definitely something that could be more of a focus, I think, just in general, just from engineers too. But I even on, on my marketing team or in, in marketing, when I watch other companies, frankly, they will, it's like, uh, it's like an echo chamber or they're just, they're creating marketing messaging that's not necessarily tailored to the audience. Or I'm just often shocked at, at seeing some folks' marketing messaging just not really connecting with the audience and their users or their customers or whatever. And so it's, it happens there too, which is ironic because that's the job of marketing teams is to be able to understand uh, demographics and speak to them. But even there, it's it's missed. So it's just a first principles thing that I think that can be applied to any discipline, but um, definitely engineering and tech and open source too. So to kind of wrap this up, um, and you, you touched on this in your, in your last answer, but are there any pieces of advice that you would give to people who are just starting out their kind of their career in tech? You know, having been in the industry for so long, kind of, you know, markers of, hey, this is something to keep in mind or, you know, don't, don't forget about this. Yeah, I, actually, there's, there's a lot of things I can think of. First of all, it's one of the great things about open source. Not only does it allow you to kind of cut your teeth in technology and develop, but you can also kind of show your chops and skills. I don't know how many developers I know personally that have built these fantastic careers just on a small contribution for an open source project early on in college or, you know, even if they didn't attend college. Um, again, just being involved, interacting with the community, getting to know people in these communities is powerful because these are people that can be mentors that, are incredibly smart, you know, people that are doing open source in their spare time, if it's not for work, these are unique people that are incredibly intelligent, obviously, and have a lot to give. And so I think getting in, immersed in that is good. But I think also, just from an engineering perspective, in general, there's an intersection of engineering and business that I think that a lot of engineers don't necessarily pay attention to. And of course, if you're just you know, if you're just creating code to create code and you're doing that because you love it and have fun, that's fine too. But if you're developing a product and you really do want to speak to an audience to understand the business impacts, um, this has been a challenge actually in open source. And for us too, is the way open source is run today is different than it was 20 years ago, where it really was just volunteers. Today, pretty much every major open source project has a corporate sponsor, a corporate docent, someone who's taking care of the the finances right who has the ability to be able to fund some of the development i mean it's just so it's sort of cooperative between commercial and open and communities and so that's how it is they so those companies now have to build a business model around it to be able to capture some value from some of that effort that they're putting out of there and open source now today more than ever is an intersection of business and technology and so i think it behooves anybody who's you know getting a degree um or really just is is going to be a developer or going to work in open source to make sure that they have just some cursory understanding of business and how those things intersect and interrelate. And that'll help you build better products. I think it'll help you be a better engineer. It'll help you make sure that you're understanding the user or the customer that you're building something for. All of those things will help you have that focus. And so I think it's, I think it's, um, it's something that's interesting. And I also think that there's a, a whole philosophical element to understanding that this is me frankly philosophizing a little bit of how i feel about it but i think it's also super important really just understanding open source's place in the world um too but uh that's uh that's maybe a conversation for another another podcast jp yeah perhaps <laughs> we'll, we'll save that for next time um 
Brett, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, as always, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And uh, thanks again. Yeah, man. Anytime. Yeah, it, was a, it was a blast. Thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate it. And I'll, I'm sure I'll be seeing you soon. Yep. Sounds good, man. All right.